Investors Chronicle. Companies and Market Show, welcome back, listener. It is Thursday, the 21st of July. As we record, just after 1pm, delighted to welcome Alex Hamer back to the pod. Hi, Alex. G'day. Hermione Taylor, hello. First time on. Hello, thank you for having me. Lovely to have you here. Uh, Also, Julian Hoffman. Yeah, great to be back. Thank you, John. Welcome back. And Dan Jones hosting as ever. Dan, what is coming up on today's show? First of all, we take a look at the miners, BHP and Rio, with a couple of second quarter updates uh, in the past few days. And we'll be taking a look at a couple of the others as well. Anglo may be talking about Glencore next week. Uh, it's uh, interims. Then we are going to be looking at our cover story this week, which is about economics and the passage of time in many ways, looking at different economic theories and, and whether you know, this is a kind of back to the 1970s environment we're in or whether it's something else. And finally, we are going to be talking about Abcam, uh, who is actually looking to move away from the UK and move to the US. And we're going to ask, you know, what can, should be done about that, if anything at all, and, and what investors can expect from, from those kind of trends. So yeah, quite a lot of uh, interesting material coming up, hopefully. Before we start a little news roundup, and actually on the topic of listings, I just wanted to start with uh, a company that we previewed last week, Halion, became London's biggest listing for more than 10 years. I was going to say about it, but Julian didn't have his chance to to talk about it last week. Julian, were, were you impressed with their opening? Um, yeah, I mean, they fell quite substantially, I think, on the day. But um, yeah, it, it's just it's a case of wait and see for them. I think that's the, the you know, investors are going to have to wait to see what strategy is and uh Haley and I have to convince people that um without the pharma business that they're a, a sort of viable standalone in um in a kind of land of the giants really because it's probably the smaller of the consumer healthcare businesses out there I mean there are some really big companies that could snap them up without uh, too much trouble so it's really a case of uh, whether they can defend their corner in toothpaste as you say Julian they uh they debuted it at 330p a share only to drop almost instantly, down to around 3.08. Some other news from the continent this morning. Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi has resigned, triggering alarm among investors and a jump in Italian bond yields as investors sell national debt. The sell-off has heightened the stakes for the European Central Bank, which has signalled it will raise interest rates for the first time in 11 years. In the UK, inflation for June hit fresh 40-year high at 9.4%, up from 9.1% in May. A few selected companies' lines, a growth warning from Deliveroo provided yet more evidence of a worsening consumer outlook. Management has slashed its growth expectations to between 4 to 12% for the full year, down from 15 to 25%. Shares in direct line took a 12% hit after the insurance company's trading update spooked investors. They warned that inflation in the sector was running well ahead of rises in premiums due to a combination of high used car prices and higher than expected operating costs. Russian miner Petro Pavlovsk said on Monday it had asked its administrators to delist its shares in London and Moscow. Last week, the company confirmed it would not be able to make a loan repayment to Gazprom Bank. Uh, Alex Hamer, who's sitting next to me, has a full write-up on the company's recent history on the website. Is that? Yeah, RIP. PAG. Elsewhere, uh, the IC's Gemma Slingo writes that, quote, Royal Mail's trading update is a litany of woes. The company is losing a million pounds a day with parcel and letter volumes down. 
and it has an adjusted operating loss of £92 million. And finally, Hotel Chocolat's shares tumbled by more than 40% on Tuesday morning on news that the premium chocolatier now expects to make a statutory loss for the year to 26th of June. Thank you very much, John. So, yeah, as mentioned, Alex Hamer, our news editor and commodities expert, is here to talk about some of the uh, Q2 production updates. Obviously, the mining giants have been pretty big money spinners for UK investors as of a few months ago. Uh, You know, there's been talk of a new super cycle. But more recently, you know, that recession risk has started to emerge. And, you know, there were a few signs of short-term headwinds, perhaps longer-term headwinds emerging in these updates. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and I think to to provide some context, um, usually these production updates, are there was a cyclone in the Pilbara and therefore we lost a few million tonnes of of iron ore production for the quarter, which we will catch up on. These were a bit more eagerly anticipated because of the change conditions since the last company updates. There was really a sense from management at Rio Tinto, BHP, that conditions have changed and that's shown both in commodity prices and also cost increases. Um, these companies are probably the biggest users of diesel in the world, if not, you know, among the top users of diesel. And diesel is one of the commodities that's that's climbed the most this year, kind of ahead of petroleum, ahead of oil, ahead of lithium, for example. And so they they've warned on on those costs hitting hitting earnings. So it was a a reasonably rough set of set of numbers um, for for production and also in terms of earnings estimates to come for the first half off the back of these updates. But these companies have been riding high for a long time. Their share prices have taken significant knocks over the past few weeks as investors have looked at at China, who's the main buyer of both copper and iron ore, which are Rio and BHP's main products, iron ore being the, the more important one. And they've looked at China and seen large inventories which have have narrowed since so you know there's a, there's a few different you know facets to this but basically share prices are down earnings are, are likely to be down when the interims come out um, in the coming days and weeks but it's basically priced in and for even broader context these iron ore divisions have been running at cash profit margins of 70 plus percent for for at least the past year so there's a pretty solid base for these companies even as commodity prices drop down you mentioned China and obviously, you know, we focus, as I just did, on, you know, the, the kind of recession risk, but but that's obviously a huge factor as well, what China is doing. And there's probably two sides to that, one being the potential for stimulus maybe later in the year, the other perhaps some of the noises they're making on on iron ore and their plans there. Yeah. And and, and on the stimulus, this is something that, that BHP CEO Mike Henry picked out as a as a positive factor for the for the rest of the year, how aggressively China chooses to to stimulate construction manufacturing sectors is is yet to be seen. The growth number for Chinese GDP for the June quarter was zero point four percent, which was the lowest um, since COVID hit, and well off the government's year end goal of I think five plus five point five percent. So it's hard to you know see into the minds of 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 President Xi and and his and his Politburo, but these the decisions made there in terms of how much cash to throw into you know local government bonds, which which fund a lot of construction real estate activity in China, how much to support banks, all these kind of decisions flow through to the you know the dividends of of Rio and BHP, and to a lesser extent Anglo American, which is a bit more 
diversified. So yeah, it's a it's it's, an, it's been a really interesting quarter for the big miners. And another thing that that is interesting that that might actually <laughs> encourage a, a revision of longer term um, kind of iron ore estimates is China intervening in the iron ore market in putting together a state-backed company that's that's been become official this week in the news for a few weeks now. But this company that will become a new middleman in the iron ore market in an effort to reduce some of the pricing power that, that Rio, BHP, Vale have because, you know, China is buying 70% of the world's iron ore and they they do have pricing power, but, you know, I think they just want to change that relationship a little bit. It's a bit piecemeal right now and they want to buy it all at once. Yeah, and, and there's, a, there's a history in this in that... Um, 10 years, slightly more ago, there was not much of an iron ore spot price market or spot market. It was all done through contracts and Rio and BHP didn't like this. This was the kind of tit for tat that landed um, a man named Sterling who in prison in China um, for bribery offences where that was a reaction against Rio pushing for a spot market. So there's this, there's these kind of geopolitical moves that happened over a decade ago that, that resulted in the creation of the spot market or the, the, the spot market growing in importance. And, yeah, China wants a bit more of a say in the oil price. And, I mean, at the moment, I, I, I can see why they, they want a bit more control when iron ore is at $160 a tonne US. Now it's below 100 I It seems like the spot market's working a bit better for you now. So we'll see if they, they change their, their, their tact a little bit. But, um, yeah, I'm interested to see where that goes. Yeah. Back to the companies themselves, we have had a bit of a preference for BHP over Rio, which is still pretty much in place. We talk a bit about about why why that might be. Yeah, and it's it's that Rio has slightly more exposure to iron ore directly, and with the price move that we've seen in recent weeks, it shows that that the kind of hit you'll get from the price dropping um, in terms of overall earnings, um, and that's a bit greater at, at Rio. Additionally, I see a a bit more risk within their portfolio. So you've got had major issues with Oyu Tolgoi, um, which is a copper project in Mongolia, where Rio has been building out an underground mine after they mined out an open pit resource. And then, so there's there's issues both with the ownership structure and the relationships with the Mongolian government, which is which is key for it going forward. BHP has a slight well for you know for me and 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 a lot of analysts I read has a slightly better portfolio going forward in that they've got Janssen, this um, fertilizer project in Canada, which has seen a few billion sunk into it already and it is kind of on the way to being um, a really important source of fertilizer. And, and I think the past two years has shown, or even the past six months, sorry, has shown how important that commodity is going to be for the world as we've seen how, you know, high gas prices have, have made fertilizer more expensive and hitting yields and, you know, Let's see how much food we have next year. So you know, it's kind of it's a it's a pretty critical area. And like Anglo-American buying Sirius out and taking on Woodsmith, BHP's investment in in Janssen or Janssen, however you like, um, looks pretty canny. But basically, you've got two miners with group cash profit margins above fifty percent, which is ahead of it's a few percentage points ahead of where they were during the mining boom in the 20, early 2010s, quite healthy. So, I mean, Rio's got a few more red flags for me, but it's still in a fairly good position. 
and the other shining light this year still. I mean, as you said, you know, the, these companies have given up some of their gains in the past few weeks, but Glencore is still uh, still flourishing share price wise. You know, it's got access to that, that coal market, which is which is delivering the goods. Production update, I think, next week and then interims the week after. Thank you, Alex. Uh, let's move on to our cover story this week, which is about looking forwards, not back to a certain extent, and looking at, I suppose, the way in which, you know, we, we're all quite conscious of, of the economic situation right now and uh, reminds uh, us of, you know, times like the, the 70s, maybe some different decades as well. But but perhaps it's not quite as simple as that. Uh, Hermione Taylor, our economics writer, has written a piece. Economics, you know, it's quite a nebulous subject at the best of times, but it's fair to say that things are never standing still and that that maybe some of these comparisons could do with a bit more work or are perhaps, you know, a simple shortcut, a simple shorthand, but not quite accurate in many respects. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. I mean, the past certainly has a big pull at the moment. And I think the parallels with the 1970s are almost irresistible at the moment. So we've had strikes, we've got double digit inflation forecasts, and we've got stock markets looking pretty miserable. But even though these headlines look very persuasive, I think there are actually a lot more boring underlying differences. So firstly, the link between inflation and pay growth is weaker now than it was in the 70s. And this month's labour market figures showed that real regular pay is actually falling. Um, so wages aren't even keeping up with inflation, let alone exceeding it. And this makes the risks of a 1970s style wage price spiral a lot lower. I think crucially as well, monetary policy in the UK is now set up to tackle inflation. And the Bank of England has said that it's poised to act forcefully if it needs to stamp it out. But then we've got worries about how high interest rates will go. And that's driving another comparison. And this time it's with the 80s. So the early 1980s saw the US economy tip into recession when the Fed chair Volcker wrestled with high inflation rates then. And he believed that the only way to bring inflation down was to convince the public that the Fed was getting tough on inflation. He got very tough indeed, and interest rates rose to almost 20%. So if the Bank of England is going to act forcefully, a high rate is going to tip us into recession now? I mean, it's not certain. We're used to inflation targeting now, and so in theory, the Bank of England should have to do less to persuade the public that they're taking it seriously. And the last time inflation was as high in the UK as it is today, interest rates were actually 13%, and they're not expected to go above 3.5% in this rate height cycle. So there's a big difference there. In addition to this, we're also getting some kind of whispers that this is like the 1990s too. So we've got very low confidence in the economy, and we're seeing a lot of rumbling about, is the housing market going to slow down? In the 1990s, we saw a recession and house prices fell, so some home homeowners actually entered negative equity. And we're getting an increasing number of headlines about whether history is going to repeat itself here. Again, the headlines are persuasive, but the reality is less convincing. Until we crashed out of the ERM, monetary policy was being used to maintain the value of the pound. So we saw some very, very high interest rates to defend the value of sterling. And as I said, I think the rate hikes are going to be more modest today. And it's also possible that low consumer and business confidence will be offset by our quite low unemployment rate today. So in the early 1990s, unemployment was almost twice as high as it is today. So I think none of these decades give us a perfect reflection of our situation today. But each of them does give us a glimpse of something that does feel quite familiar. I suppose the the 70s is, you know, the the obvious parallels with, with the high inflation period and things like that. But, but it's also that 
era people hark back to because, as you kind of say and you discuss in the piece, it was following that, you know, with, with Volcker in the US and, and, you know, the rise of the, the will and the, the desire to stamp out inflation that that kind of new regime took hold. And from our perspective, it can be strange to think back then, you know, to the extent to which inflation wasn't a, a big boogeyman in the closet until it actually really surfaced and spiked it in in the 70s. I suppose thinking about this period, you know, we've over the last decade at least, you know, there's been a lot of concerns about inflation and easy monetary policy. You know, there's been a lot of people worrying about what might happen if inflation does return. It finally has now returned. So some of those kind of, you know, vestiges of the 70s and that kind of thinking are back. But it's a test, I suppose, of our of our framework and frameworks to see if they have changed and to see what what we can do differently. But I suppose, you know, we're always going to be comparing different eras, aren't we? It's a natural human instinct, I suppose, to, to look back and to try and, you know, grasp for some kind of certainty and some kind of comparison that that we can make sense of the present day with. Is that, I mean, there's, yeah. there's that phrase of history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So I think it is really tempting to, to look back. I think there is some good sense in this, because I suppose if we look back, maybe we can decipher what's around the corner. We could work out where policy's heading, will policymakers copy what was done in the past or try and avoid the same mistakes. I think that sometimes it can become unhelpful because sometimes we look back and we almost try and reassure ourselves that we've seen it all before and that, you know, economics wasn't properly developed before, but now we've got all the tools that we need to tackle things ahead. I think that's actually particularly the case when we're looking back to the 1970s. There is some commentary from economists at the moment saying, oh, yeah, the situation is similar. We've got high inflation, but at least we're not going to spend 10 years wondering what the solution is. We know what to do now. We know to put rates up. I think that's actually overly simplistic. I think it is a mistake to look back at the past as just a means of reassuring ourselves that today's economics knows what to do. I think there's actually a better argument that in difficult economic times, economics evolves to try and come up with new answers. So I think it would be wrong to assume that we've got the perfect finished version of economics that can handle all of our problems today. Yeah, and this is something uh, you, you talk about in the piece as well. I won't go into too much detail because if it does whet your appetite, you know, that's something to to pick up the magazine and have a look at. But but we do discuss some of the ways in which, you know, economics as a framework could change in the months or the years ahead as well. I think, you know, there's been periods of time, as you say, economics does respond to the, the situations on the ground or certainly policies do. and We'll see, as you say, whether whether the tools which we are using right now prove effective. There's certainly that comparison, you know, of, of the sense certainly in the UK that we are once again behind the curve on inflation. But but as you say, the Bank of England has now developed a pretty forceful way of looking at things. It's fair to say maybe things will change again if if, uh, if inflation proves more persistent, or even you know as we face up to some of the other economic challenges coming in the years ahead. I had a question, actually, Hermione, just before we move on, uh, just to, sorry to interrupt. Um, why is it that nobody talks about balanced payments anymore? Because that was a big topic in the 70s period of inflation. It, it is, this, has that sort of fallen out of fashion as a measure of uh, of what's going on? You know what? I think it has. I mean, when we're looking at kind of headline indicators of what's going on in the economy, it's the kind of thing that you still learn about in an economics textbook as a useful indicator, but it has really fallen out the kind of commentary and briefings that you get sent um, so I think it's it's a nice example of what we think of as important and what we think of as you know good economics. It does change all the time and, and it you know it has varied a lot over the years. Yeah, because there was always that. If you look back in those files, you can all see there's this massive debate every month. Every time we imported an airline or something, there was this massive thing about all the balance of payments. But it's definitely not a not a problem anymore in the same in the same sense. It certainly doesn't get the air, any airtime really. Yeah. 
Yeah, but there's always so just to uh, to add to the, your history comment, the, the Karl Marx said that uh, history repeats itself first as tragedy and then as farce. So uh, we may we might be into the farce. <laughs> yeah. It's better than tragedy, but not much better than anything else, I suppose. I'm just going to throw another example in there, just uh, you know, to add to all the decade comparisons. That one I found quite interesting when I was looking for our jubilee issue a couple of months or a few weeks ago at you know the 1950s ICs, and you know there were a few parallels there in terms of you know coming out of this big cataclysm, the uh, Second World War in that case, obviously, you know the kind of shortages and, and you know supply chain issues you had then as well, but. Maybe that just shows, you know, it's easy to draw parallels with any area if you look at it very closely. So, uh, so yeah, we, we shall see what happens in the uh, the months and years ahead and, and do look out for that feature for a, a bit more uh, a bit more detail on some of the kind of economic frameworks that might come to dominate our thinking or certainly policymakers' thinking over the next few years. Okay, back to the present day, the very present day. Today is a period or a day in which there's another UK company which is moving off the market. In this case, uh, it's Abcam, and it's not been taken over in this case, but it is going to junk its dual listing and stick with only its NASDAQ listing, which I think it only um, uh, introduced about 18 months ago. Now, for, for UK investors, this has a number of implications. Uh, fortunately, most people on platforms should be able to you know, transfer those shares over pending the details of the situation or the platform should be able to rather relatively pain-free. You've got obviously different tax implications though of holding US shares. And, and the bigger issue probably is, I think we can all say, is, is the oft-discussed thing at the moment of the UK market to an extent dwindling away or some of the big companies moving elsewhere. Obviously, we've got you know, a huge amount of interesting companies still to buy. And we've got the likes of Halion this week coming to market. But but with the takeovers and with people prioritizing uh, sometimes, you know, the, the US listing, it, it does seem like thing, things are starting to shift a little bit. And you can see why policymakers are doing the kind of things they've done this week with the publication of the Austin Review to look at how to make UK markets more attractive. Obviously, the FCA has changed its rules as well. So there's a lot of stuff going on in an attempt to bring the UK back up to speed almost. And, and Julian, I know you covered some of the uh, aspects of the review and the the, um, the new Chancellor's comments on it in the Mansion House speech. How do you sort of see the, the UK environment for for companies at the moment? And in terms of, you know, the appetite there is for these dual listings and companies moving away, you know, how's the balance seems- kind of shifting? Yeah, thanks, Dan. It seems to be a very specific movement i don't think it's a general trend in terms of the entire market where we saw it most uh, vividly is in the pharma and biotech sectors uh, i.e sort of high tech areas uh, where companies have decided they can't get enough capital raising here in the uk and um have instead gone to the nasdaq where there's a bigger pool of investors uh, there are more specialized funds for example and as some of this is what the government is trying to address with its changes to uh, listing rules. Uh, yes, there's another review coming in that's supposed to report by the end of the year on um, how to make that process more efficient, which the Chancellor was talking about at the Mansion House speech this week. Um, but it, it is a it is a trend that's in a very specific area of the market. And um, I mean, by my calculation, there's about 15 companies since 2018 that had AIM listings of one sort or another, uh, and then decided to move to this, the Nasdaq permanently, um, and they are all, they're all in that space. There's, there's, there's ones that people won't ever heard of, like um, Achilles Pharma, 
there's um, even one called bicycle farmer. So I kind of I like to think of those as um, twins of some sort. But um, yeah, so they it's a very specific movement. It's it's related to how companies perceive the ability to raise cash here at a certain level. Once it gets past the third round of private funding, there seems to be resistance to for institutional investors, particularly to taking up smaller high tech um, high tech companies into their portfolios, which is why they then tend to make a listing move to the Nasdaq. And, and but it's been going on for quite a few years. So the first one I can remember was back in 2013 with GW Pharma, which made cannabinoid derived um, pain medicines. And that, that caused quite a lot of discussion at the time about how they could reform the listing listing rules. And a mere 10 years later, the uh, the listing rules are being reformed. So yes, so the, it did take um, a little bit of time, but it's sort of kind of getting there in the end. I mean, the question really is whether it will make a great deal of difference because it's really about the culture of how people want to invest rather than the ability of companies to offer a new product that everyone wants to buy into. So it's, you know, are the institutional investors just too conservative to to risk their uh, shareholders' capital in in a small biotech from Oxford? And it seems to it seems to be that in the US there is more appetite for for those kind of small to mid scale companies that could eventually turn into something much bigger. As you say, it's an institutional investor issue in many ways. You know, you've, the US markets are much more liquid, and that's partly because people are prepared to to back these kind of companies more forcefully. Perhaps, though, you know, over the last decade, you know, not uh, last twelve months, notwithstanding, we've uh, obviously you know had a huge tech rally and. You know, there are, there are, you know, big UK tech funds now. Perhaps that's going to become, you know, a little bit more that will help the situation. You know, we do have the, you know, kind of golden triangle university spin-off kind of companies here who, who you know, do do very well. And it would be obviously great to see more of them. Uh, the, the, yeah, the, yeah, the universities are turning out the companies. I mean, you yeah. go, there's a big uh, hub up in Newcastle where they, they have quite a few um, innovative sort of medical and biotech companies. You go down to Exeter now has a um, a science park next to the university that's doing the same thing. So it's not really a question of talent or expertise. It's always that that jump from you know being a promising a promising idea to being a viable company, and that, and that seems to be the where we're always lacking in that sense. But I mean the, the you know the promising thing is that they still seem to be turning out the turning out the products and turning out the um, and turning out the things that people want to buy but it's a question of getting the institutions to to buy into it i think i mean if it makes anyone feel better the, the biggest one was arrival um which was listed um last year the uh the electric van and truck maker and it's down 87 percent since it listed so yeah it's not all not all roses over a you can have US them listing. new york yeah exactly we will keep the uh the quality i mean i think in some ways you know it is true that you know, biotech is one aspect, but tech in general, you know, obviously you don't have the 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 giants over here. But you know, there are there are you know UK UK listed companies in that space doing good things, interesting things, fast growing things. So, you know, is it's more a kind of a space for our readers to look into. You know, slightly lo- lower down the cap scale and find those companies that are slightly unheralded as well. Yeah, I mean, this is Silicon Roundabout in Hoxton, isn't it? Was the uh, the tech area? I remember working there in the the mid two thousands. And suddenly everybody turned up with really funny haircuts and tight jeans. And you kind of think, well, that's the area gone. Uh, yeah, we've, we've got to move somewhere else. Yeah, it's not for us anymore. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> but, you know, yeah, some of these people are producing fantastic companies still. The other thing I did just want to mention, 
You know, I said we don't have the big companies anymore, but there is still some discussion over ARM and uh, what's going to happen there when SoftBank lists it. The UK government has obviously been quite keen for it to come back to uh, the UK market, having not cared too much when it was bought in 2016 and taken off the market. There was a very interesting story from our esteemed colleagues in the FT, uh, I think last week, suggesting that A, obviously with the government turmoil here, it might, there might not be anyone around, but the pressure on SoftBank to, to list them here. But of more interest perhaps to, to our listeners was the suggestion there that even if it were to list in the US, it could be potentially accessed by via UK investors, that IPO via something like a primary bid offer. I think we saw things, we've seen that before with admittedly a much smaller scale with the Soho House last year, which listed in the US but had a UK offer. So again, there are these mechanisms in place. And that's another thing government's been trying to uh, improve, I think, this week in terms of making sure retail investors do get access to not just IPOs, but also secondary fundraisings, things like that. So there are, you know, efforts being made to to um, include the private investor in some of these deals a bit more than than they were in the past, which is which is reassuring and can only be positive, I think. On that, uh, on that relatively positive note, that does bring us to the end of today's show. So thank you to Julian and to Hermione and to Alex and John. And thank you to you, as ever, for listening. We'll be back next week with another Companies and Markets show. Until then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.